I feel like I'm at a rave or something. I feel like I should be taking some ecstasy and have a water bottle or something. All right. But that's actually the one, one of the few drugs we won't be talking about today because we are going to be talking about the notions of mind control and brainwashing. These are terms that get thrown around a lot. Uh, and um, one obvious question would be, is there really even such a thing? Um, that may be something that the experts will debate forever. One thing we can tell you is there really is such a thing as trying to accomplish it, and uh, the trying to accomplish it part has been attempted repeatedly by various agencies of the government of the United States, especially the CIA. Uh, nobody questions that anymore. So we're going to talk uh, about some of those efforts, uh, some of the efforts by uh, other institutions and in other places, uh, and we're, we're going to tell you the history of mind control, such as it is. And to do that, we have assembled some excellent guests. Towards the end, uh, this is kind of only tangentially related to the first part of our conversation. Towards the end, we're going to talk about so-called cults because obviously, first of all, it's the 20th anniversary of Heaven's Gate. Um, they, those that would be the Nike-wearing suicide group the people uh, that just passed uh, in late March. Uh, and then some of you who are listening to uh, Fresh Air on the day that this is being broadcast heard a conversation about Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Uh, so, you know, they're back in the news. But not everything that gets called a cult is going to be engaged in anything resembling mind control or coercion. So anyway, that'll, that'll be at the end. We're going to talk about other things uh, at the beginning. Before I mention those other things, I want to mention that this is one of those days when we have um, – what we call Radio for the Deaf. We try to create a version of a radio broadcast that can be enjoyed by a deaf audience. The way we do that is we use Facebook Live, which is a relatively easy, low-threshold way to push video up onto uh, the Internet where a large audience can see it. That's what we're doing today. Um, everything that I'm saying and everything that my guests will say will be interpreted by ASL interpreters. Um, Sarah and Mary Sue are here in the studio with us. We have cameras on them. The cameras are sending things to the column. McEnroe Show page of Facebook. So if you know of anybody who wants to experience the show that way uh, in an ASL translation, they have to go to the Colin McEnroe Show uh, page of Facebook, and there it will be. And you can hear, uh, you can see everything that I'm saying. Um, all right. So uh, without further ado, our guest today uh, for the beginning are Chris Simpson, professor of journalism and expert on propaganda, democracy, and media theory at American University in Washington, D.C., author of several uh, books, including Blowback and Science of coercion. Um, and Ben Bolin is with us, head uh, video writer and host for Stuff They Don't Want You to Know podcast. So, um, Chris, I'm going to start with you. And, and I think our story begins kind of in the 1950s, right? I mean, when we start talking about mind control and brainwashing and at least uh, attempts to, by governments to experiment with this, is there a precursor to it or do we kick in right around then? Well, I think it it actually arose with the rise of radio in the 1930s and the enormous impact that radio, especially at that time, had on audiences. And it, it came as a surprise even to radio professionals. Uh, so at that time, in Germany, for example, uh, there was quite a bit of emphasis on the ideological role of radio, uh, particularly coming from the Nazis. That translated out into a variety of studies. Um, the drug studies that you're talking about began in the late 1940s and went into the 1950s. So late 1940s and into the 1950s. And one thing that's changed, and, and I, I hope I'm not being facile about this, is that we now have an enemy who's 
distinctive not strictly for its military might, but also for the idea that maybe its thought process is insidiously appealing, that we have uh, a philosophy, uh, a system of government, communism, whatever you want to call it, communism, an, an ideology that may be seductive. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's one of the reasons that suddenly the U.S. government gets very interested in getting inside people's heads, because they have this notion that maybe communism could get inside people's heads and they'd like to be there first. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that was uh, a fear of communism uh, was uh, a driving force both for studies of how to interrogate people and for studies of how to influence broad audiences. Uh, the ideological part of this uh, began earlier, actually, uh, to some extent even uh, during World War I, uh, but uh, also the, the Nazis were viewed as an ideological threat, and in fact were. Uh, the America First Movement, uh, which the original America First Movement, uh, began in the 1930s and had quite a substantial uh, following in the United States, in, including some of the same political alignments that you see uh, today. Um, although I feel like we need to, or maybe we don't, but let's try anyway to see if we can draw some kind of bright line between propaganda and mind control, right? I mean, you know, Rush Limbaugh influences a mass audience. I wouldn't say that he's capable of mind control. I mean, Bruce, so does Bruce Springsteen, so did Father Coughlin. Um, sure. so, so we're not really talking about that. Or are we talking about the way in which using things like radio, you could sort of see how it was possible to influence a mass audience and maybe even um, crank them up into a fever pitch. And then you start wondering, well, what's the next step that lies beyond that? Right. Well, if you're talking about mind control in the sense that the CIA pursued it in the late 40s and throughout the 1950s, and to some extent today, um, that's a more individual uh, phenomenon. That's more sort of person by person. Propaganda typically is aimed at uh, larger groups or, and this is where they overlap just a little bit, uh, at uh, reinforcing the the, pre the preconceptions and the attitudes of individual people. So the two are not the same, but they tend to nurture one another. Um, let's uh, add Ben Bolin to the conversation. So, Ben, uh, somewhere around the uh, time spectrum that Chris is talking about, uh, we start to hear, or we now uh, know about something called uh, MK Ultra. Explain to people what that was. Uh, yeah, so the story of MK Ultra. As, as Chris mentions, um, it, it has quite a bit of precedent. Uh, in 1951, the Central Intelligence Agency received word from a military envoy that there was a Swiss drug company called Sandoz Pharmaceuticals. And originally, the, uh, the CIA was under the impression that this drug company had 100 million doses of LSD that were just available on the market. And this is where we see that, um, that information gap and the, the rivalry between the Cold War powers because the intelligence apparatus at the time was concerned that uh, the USSR would be purchasing this LSD and using it perhaps to launch an attack of some sort on a U.S. Uh, a US city or a town or a military base. And their primary fear was that there might be a water supply spiked with the substance. 
they also knew at the time that the the Russian side was engaged in, uh, as Chris said, uh, finding ways to reinforce or at some point undermine the behavior and personalities of regular people. One of the things they were searching for would be some sort of truth serum or, of course, the ability to program someone to do something that they would not ordinarily do. And the American side also wanted to have some sort of answer to this or some sort of comparable ability. So when they learned of this uh, Swiss drug company's LSD supply, the U.S. moved to take it off the market, and they found that Sandoz had only manufactured about 400,000 doses. And then they purchased these. And with that, they began conducting their own experiments. Um, there were related projects to MK Ultra, but the ultimate overall theme here is uh, to see if someone's behavior could be influenced by the substance. Would it, would it create a more willing interrogation subject? Would it be possible to, for lack of a better phrase, program uh, a different type of behavior, an anomalous behavior, into a suspect. And at this at this point, um, <clears throat> this accelerated. This program accelerated until, in 1975, Congress finally held inquiries into the operation. And MK Ultra, in general, is is an umbrella operation covering almost 150 sub-projects. Right, and so would, and I, I, uh, before we get to, the, to that part of it, I want to just sort of stay in this historical time frame for just uh, a minute or two longer because there's some things worth exploring here. Although, Chris Simpson, uh, let's go back to what Ben just said because, look, here's the two fundamental questions. I think he's posed them. Can you, using some welter of techniques that would might include the use of, of mind-altering drugs and hypnosis and yeah, and maybe sensory deprivation or whatever. Can you, A, get somebody to tell you the truth about something that they don't want to tell you, and B, get them to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do, something that goes against their inclinations? And the subset of B, I mean, look, we know from watching anybody drop acid, you can get them to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. But in this case, you want them to do a specific thing. You want, And so can you get people, can you, as, as Ben was saying, program a person to do something that he would ordinarily do. And at the end of all of this, 50 or 60 years down the road, I, unless, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the answer is no to both of them. Uh, certainly you cannot do that in a regular or systematic way. There are individuals who are very susceptible. Uh, but the, the, the CIA was looking for some sort of magic key um, or mathematical formula that if you do step one, two, and three, then you will have such and such a result. Uh, and no, that that simply doesn't work. Um, the and you know that that you can f get some sort of hope that the human spirit can survive the type of abuses uh, that were used to to test these theories. Um, uh, so what what we do see happening is a replay or a reoccurrence every oh I don't know every new war or so where supposed experts come along and say, look, we can sell this to you. That's exactly what happened at Abu Ghraib uh, and to some of the same players. Uh, so they come along and, and say, 
you know, we will contract with you to uh, provide our secret uh, approach to hypnosis or a secret approach to insulin shock or electroshock or whatever it is, and that this will get, this will lead to the results that the CIA or military agencies are are seeking. Um, but those results are are not predictable, um, and uh, and they are actually nowadays they're recognized as crimes of war, crimes against humanity. Uh, at they should have been recognized, in fact, based on the Nuremberg precedents, uh, as crimes against humanity back in the 1950s. But within the confines of military intelligence complex. Uh, they were not recognized in those terms. Um, so many things that I want to ask about. But, Ben, um, obviously, if you're going to experiment with uh, giving people LSD without their informed consent, you're going to have to find populations that you can do stuff like that to. And as Chris is suggesting, most of our understanding about uh, what, uh, what kind of experimentation is allowed and what constitutes uh, a war crime you know, we're, we're already in a pretty, you know, blinking red light area here. So where do they find people to do stuff like this to? I assume somewhere on the fringes of society. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Most of the MK Ultra experiments were, in fact, conducted uh, using the scientific method, and they had informed and willing test subjects at universities, labs, and independent research facilities. However, it is absolutely true that several of these tests fell far outside the bounds of what we could consider acceptable or ethical protocol. For instance, one study lured heroin addicts to participate as test subjects and paid them for their time with heroin. And then another study uh, monitored the effects of LSD on African-American inmates in prison, and that is a clear violation of any sort of ethical guideline. And as, as it continued, as the program continued, the experiments became even less scientific. People would be dosed uh, without their knowledge, much less their consent. And then they would, they would, as you said, look for members of society who were in some way disadvantaged um, and for one reason or another would have less likelihood to seek legal recourse. And at times this had disastrous consequences. Right. Uh, we've got a clip here. Uh, it's hard was hard to do, I think, conventional journalism about this uh, anywhere close to the time these experiments were going on. And we'll tell you a little bit more about what these experiments were in just a second. But uh, here in 1978 is an interview between ABC News's Paul Altmaier and Dr. Russell Monroe, a psychiatrist at Tulane Medical Center in New Orleans who did work on, uh, many of these things have these fabulous names like Project Artichoke and Project Bluebird and, and the Phoenix Project and uh, and Operation Bloodstone. They have these things that uh, sound like they're or straight out of, um, our, you know, a man from Uncle or something. Anyway, uh, this is somebody who worked on uh, on the uh, Project Artichoke. Uh, Dr. Russell Monroe uh, talking about that exact thing. Other army experiments continued on mental patients around the country. Work done involved several drugs, hallucinogenics, and electrodes implanted in the brain. The chief researcher was Dr. Russell Monroe. What therapeutic effect would the type of experiment that I just described have on a patient? <coughs> well, 
the therapeutic effect would be indirect. Was this patient aware that she was being given LSD? Yes, I mean, they, they uh, were told that they would be given some medication, uh, and they specifically said LSD. Uh, well, we told them, uh, I don't think that they would have even known what LSD was then at the time. Dr. Manoa, what, what do you think the Army Chemical Corps was looking for in all of this testing? They were looking for an incapacitating agent that would not harm the person permanently, but would incapacitate them temporarily. That seemed like a, a humanistic way to, <laughs> to wage a war, if war is necessary. So, Chris Simpson, yes, here we are. We're dosing people uh, without uh, telling them with LSD, not that they would have known what LSD was maybe at that time. But what, what Chris, what, what were these experiments? I mean, what exactly were they studying or doing in these experiments? Uh, well, first, I think one of the interesting things about that sound clip is the extent to which Dr. Monroe is self-deceiving himself. That he is uh, misstating. He's, he's at least... To my ears, he's deliberately lying, um, but clearly he has bizarre conceptions about what he, as a doctor, was actually doing. Uh, so, as uh, Ben can can uh, elaborate and, and knows very well, there were um, lobotomies were explored as a way to uh, what uh, to dispose of. Uh, people who uh, had either been through this program or, in some cases, were uh, intelligence agents uh, who had gone um, uh, rogue. Uh, electroshock was used. Uh, insulin shock was used, which is uh, comparable to electrical shock in terms of of its effect on the human body. There was a, uh, a researcher at uh, in Canada at McGill University He's the uh, founder of the World Psychiatric Association. His name is Ewan Cameron. He would put people in stress positions or isolation or repeated doses of, of LSD for literally months at a time uh, and to the point that people were utterly shattered. Experiments were done on children. Experiments were done on children with, with disabilities. Um, some experiments, uh, these are army experiments, were done on the general public in, in San Francisco. Uh, there are also uh, so-called uh, honey trap experiments involving uh, use of prostitutes. Actually, uh, we, we, should, we should pause on that one. And so, Ben, uh, he's talking at least partly about something that was called Operation Midnight Climax. I, I told you these things had colorful names. It's, it's sort of odd because some of the things that we associate with the later 1960s include, of course, the recreational use of LSD. Eventually, that world found out about it. And then we also think of sort of San Francisco and a kind of a wild free love and sex scene. But once again, these uh, CIA experimenters, they got in there first, right? They set up brothels, essentially, in San Francisco as a way of administering um, LSD. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So one of the, one of the prime movers in this um, umbrella of different operations is a fellow named Sidney Gottlieb. And he is the technical director of a lot of this stuff, working in concert with a, a narcotics bureau officer named George Hunter White. Uh, in the specific circumstance of Operation Midnight Climax, they did exactly what you're saying, Colin. They, uh, the CIA set up safe houses that it established 
as de facto brothels, and they would pay um, they would pay sex workers to lure clients back to these areas, and then the 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 clients were plied with all sorts of substances, but one of the substances was indeed LSD. And the entire time this was happening, there would be agents and researchers behind one-way glass watching uh, what whatever change in behavior occurred. Uh, and then, of course, they would develop uh, means of using this as blackmail later, how to surveil and, uh, and how to record the activities. And then with the hope Again, being to uh, being to Chris's point, the hope being that they would somehow find a reproducible method of altering behavior in a predictable way. But ultimately, what happened is they just broke uh, a smorgasbord of laws and did not did not ever find that scalable option. Uh, this this continued, by the way, uh, the midnight climax safe houses. Um, continued into the 60s, and the ones in San Francisco closed in the mid-60s, in 1965, and they still had some, they had one more in New York uh, for one more year. But it, it went on for a significant amount of time. Right. So uh, if that sounds a little familiar to you, it's kind of one of the things that was alleged in the infamous uh, dossier very recently that supposedly maybe Russian intelligence had about Donald Trump, that maybe that there was some incident involving exactly, well, except for the LSD part, uh, something along those lines, having uh, bringing him in and having him unwittingly interact while observed with Russian prostitutes. Never proved. Yeah, to, be, just, you know. to be fair, even without, even without the use of LSD or some kind of MK Ultra related substance or insulin shock or something that that sort of technique mm. is is a is a tried and true method by various intelligence agencies. You're absolutely right. Yeah, sure. So well, black, blackmail is is uh, the daily bread of intelligence right. agencies. I that's mean, a whole that's other a show. Whole other show. Yeah. So okay. so Chris, okay. I, you know um, Ben just mentioned somebody. We have to go to a break here pretty soon. And and. This guy, Sidney Gottlieb, he's a whole show. I mean, we could really do an hour on this guy. He is absolutely the embodiment of everything that we're talking about and also the embodiment of the way in which Cold War intelligence got just very baroque and and uh, and elaborate and zany almost, but in a very dark way. So, I mean, we have this guy, and he's just characterologically fascinating guy, born with a club foot, but obsessed with folk dancing, allegedly so obsessed with folk dancing that on some of his CIA field assignments, he would sneak away so he could check out the local folk dancing scene. But meanwhile, he's involved in all these kinds of experiments, these mind control and brainwashing experiments that we're talking about right now, plus this whole range of wildly colorful and almost kind of you know, ridiculous sounding assassination plots against Castro, Lumumba, uh, I think somebody in, in Iran, too, working very much with, with Richard Bissell, uh, the spy master who grew up in the then private Mark Twain house about, you know, six blocks from where I'm sitting right now. Um, so uh, I don't know if there's anything more to say about Sidney Gottlieb, except that, I mean, you know, Chris, he's he's sort of the embodiment of like this recklessly kind of evil spy master who then spends the rest of his life in this state of incredible penitence, running leper colonies and, and, and communes and working as a hospice worker. I mean, I don't know. The, has anybody done the definitive biography yet, I guess is my question. 
Uh, there's been a fair amount of publishing about him. I don't know if there's a definitive uh, biography. I do think it's, it is the case that there are a number of characters who are capable of committing um, obvious and atrocious and brutal crimes who then also change uh, in one way or another in their in their lives. And, and it goes both ways, frankly. I mean, there's people who, who were very idealistic as young people who became quite uh, brutal as uh, older people. So, you know, these are individuals are in, unpredictable. And that is, if there is any sa- le- saving grace type lesson to be learned from this is that the the capacity of people to change uh, outwitted or was stronger than all of the drugs and electroshock and everything else um, that uh, that got thrown at them. All right. We're going to grab a quick break right now. We're going to come back with more about mind control and brainwashing after this. All right, I'm back. I still don't have Kion Wolf around uh, to do thank yous, and we usually do the thank yous in the second break of the show, but I have so many thank yous to do, and I don't think I have any notes for them, so I'm going to do some of them now, and then I'm going to figure out who I didn't thank, and I'll thank those people later. Uh, so special thanks. Once again, as you know, some of you know, we're doing the show also as um, something that can be enjoyed by um, a deaf audience, so we do it. We call it Radio for the Deaf. We do it at Facebook Live on the Colin McEnroe Show page. That's happening right now. We have these wonderful interpreters. Uh, in here, Sarah and Mary Sue, uh, who are interpreting respectively for the guests and for me. Uh, so that's all available in ASL, American Sign Language, on Facebook Live. Uh, that takes a lot of people to do that. Uh, special thanks to Josh Nalea, who kind of makes all of that happen and is also producing this show, assisted by Jonathan McNichol and Betsy Kaplan. Uh, also, uh, Heather Brandon and Tucker Ives from our digital department, heavily involved in this. So is Joe Koss. Um, and lots of other people, too. And I will be informed prior to the next break who else I need to thank, and I will thank all those people then. There's a lot of people to thank, though. Uh, We also want to thank these great guests that we have here uh, to talk about this topic. Uh, Chris Simpson, professor of journalism uh, and an expert on propaganda, democracy, and uh, media theory at American University in Washington, D.C., author of several books, including Blowback and Science of Coercion. Uh, Ben Bolin, head video writer and host for Stuff They Don't Want You to Know podcast. So in in case any of you are sitting there thinking, well, this all sounds like, you know, some kind of George Nori thing or something like maybe it didn't really happen. Not the things that George Nori talks about didn't really happen because we already did that show. But um, well, let's just listen to President uh, Bill Clinton uh, talk uh, about this uh, during what was 1995. Yes, 1995, October 3rd. This is uh, Bill Clinton. Thousands of government-sponsored experiments did take place at hospitals, universities, and military bases around our nation. Some were unethical, not only by today's standards, but by the standards of the time in which they were conducted. The United States of America offers a sincere apology to those of our citizens who were subjected to these experiments. That's why this morning I signed an executive order instructing every arm and agency of our government that conducts or regulates research 
involving human beings to review immediately their procedures. All right, so he's mainly talking about radiation experiments, but it also included under this umbrella are some of the things that we're talking about here, pretty well established. So, Ben Bolin, um, if somebody had asked me prior to getting ready for the show and all the research that Josh Nalea did what I knew about this, it would be pretty limited, but I, I probably would be able to summon up the notion that somebody to whom LSD had been administered by the government wound up jumping out a window so um, and killing him to, to his death. And so it turns out uh, I'm not completely wrong about that, right? There, tell us a little bit about the story of Frank Olson. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Colin. So Dr. Frank Olson is one of the one of the more tragic individual stories from MK Ultra. Uh he was not in on the the inner circle of the people operating uh these these programs. Uh he was described as a perfectly normal army scientist and he accepted a spiked drink from an operative at a joint army agency conference and very quickly uh, developed what would be characterized as a bad trip. You know, so very loud, very animated, experiencing acute paranoia. But this lasted long after the effects of the LSD should have worn off. And he, he missed uh, the Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Uh, this was 1953. Uh, and on November 7th of 1953, he, uh, November 27th, excuse me, uh, he apparently committed suicide. He fell from a 10th story window in a New York hotel. This was described at the time by contemporary sources as, as suicide, as uh, depression, paranoia, mental instability. However, in the 1990s, evidence emerged that he may have been struck over the head with a blunt object before uh, defenestrating. Right. His, didn't his, his family had him exhumed, I think, right? Yeah. The, uh, his, son was, um, his son was conducting more research and, and trying to really clear this up because even, even at the time, given the circumstances, it, the story had several holes, had several questionable, um, you know, questionable assumptions in there. But yeah, he was, he was given this drug, he was given a spike drink um, by his colleagues, right? And as a result, he, there's no way around it. It was related to his death. So, um, Chris, how much of this stuff really is kind of undisputed matter of record stuff? In other words, to, to what degree does the United States government, the CIA, the Department of Defense, anybody else who might have been involved in this say, eh, that's mostly an exaggeration. We, that's like stuff that people on the Alex Jones show say. And to what degree is it, yeah, yeah, that stuff happened? Uh, it's a complicated question. It's because uh, the, first of all, the government doesn't have a single line or a single story that it tells. What happens is is that bits of evidence come out, either through a congressional hearing, sometimes through Freedom of Information Act, uh, and also there was the, the instance of the radiation experiments that, that um, uh, President Clinton was talking about, and so on. Meanwhile, there are also parts of the American government that uh, produce disinformation about this, uh, downplay it, try to what's called naturalize it as, as old news, you know, 
um, and uh, uh, and it, to some extent, the media, uh, some media, cooperate in this. Uh, one of the interesting things about MK Ultra was is it was uh, done in parallel with and involving some of the same personalities within the intelligence community, with the creation of worldwide uh, active recruitment of journalists to produce propaganda both that aimed at discrediting rivals and aimed at uh, promoting the United States. Those practices continue. Uh, so what we see here, I would say, is the pre President Clinton talked about individuals and, and, and um, apologizing to them. But that is only part of the story. What we saw throughout this period is a culture of exploiting the most vulnerable people in society uh, to advance the perceived bureaucratic uh, uh, priorities of the intelligence community or the military community uh, or to advance the perceived national security interests of the United States in, in an international situation. I personally see this as much more of a cultural uh, problem uh, than a group of unfortunate individuals who happen to be damaged by uh, out of co control or romantic um, uh, intelligence agents. I, I think that this is deeper in our culture than uh, just a crazy thing that the CIA happened to do at a certain time. Well, when you see deeper in our culture, I, I don't know. It seems to me that we're still kind of notoriously disobedient people. Uh, in fact, we just found out the other day if uh, United Airlines asks you to get out of your seat, maybe you don't get out of your seat. You don't buy pep Pepsi just because Kendall Jenner handed a can to a cop. Right. And, and you don't vote the way that Nate Silver thinks you're going to vote necessarily. Even Nate Silver can't quantify human behavior uh, at this point. So, I mean, Maybe it's permeated our culture in certain ways, Chris, but I don't feel like we're living in Sidney Gottlieb's world. Well, we're not living in Sidney Gottlieb's head, which was, which was its own world. But I think we are living in Sidney Gottlieb's world in the sense that he had a, a set of ideas, ideology, uh, preconceptions, habits about how to look at the world. And at that particular time, uh, the Russians were the main threat, Chinese number two threat, and so on. We see the same type of mentality reoccurring uh, at the time the United States invaded Iraq. We see the same type of mentality, at least in my personal view, uh, in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the anti-Muslim uh, uh, rules that the present administration is trying to um, implement. And more fundamental than just those rules is that that particular candidate ran on those promises, ran on that, those types of slanders, ran on that type of disinformation, and may well have been elected in part on exactly those, that sort of vision of the world. Um, we're going to have to stop there uh, just so we can take a break. Uh, but we've had wonderful guests for this segment. Thanks so much to Ben Bolin, uh, who is a writer and host for Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, a podcast. And Steve, oh, coming up. Uh, and also we, we're going to uh, add Steve Hassan to our conversation. Uh, and also we've been talking to, and I think we'll continue to talk to, uh, Chris Simpson, professor of journalism uh, at American University in Washington, D.C. We'll take a break. We'll come back after this. Pretzels, 
Brainwashing us in Washington, Westminster in London. Brainwash my great uncle, brainwash my cousin Bob. Even got my grandma when she was working for the mob. Brainwash you while you're sleeping, while in your traffic jam. Brainwash you while you're weeping. Oh, there's so many important newsworthy events in today's world. But what's making headlines? Donald and Ivana Trump, greedy pigs. I mean, what's the big deal? The, the Trumps are just two normal people with normal problems, therapy. Donald's a confused man who should evoke our sympathy and understanding, cheating bastard. And Ivana, a very sweet and unfortunately heartbroken woman, had it coming to her, who was misled into signing an obviously unfair prenuptial agreement, sucker. And caught up in all of this uh, in the middle is a sweet, innocent country girl named Marla Maples, homewrecker, who never had a chance. All right, that's Kevin Nealon on Saturday Night Live, way in the past as Mr. Subliminal, one of the many agents of mind control uh, that uh, we've seen uh, in this country. We're talking about mind control, brainwashing, uh, that whole notion that you can maybe program somebody to do something they wouldn't do. Uh, I said I would do more thank yous. Uh, I certainly want to thank uh, from Source Interpreting, uh, Patricia Clark. Pat Clark's uh, here with us uh, today, as she is every time we do this. Uh, Sam Hockaday, uh, and of course, Source Interpreting in general, uh, and of course, American School for the Deaf. Uh, thanks very much for all of their help. Katie Tularski, who's our uh, executive producer here, is uh, also one of the people who makes something like this possible. And when I say something like this, I mean uh, our ability to do what we call Radio for the Deaf, where we uh, provide uh, an ASL version uh, of our show on Facebook Live on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. That's where you go if you want to see Sarah and Mary Sue, our wonderful interpreters who are here today. All right. So uh, we're going to move on a little bit here. Although, so... Chris, I'm going to um, ask you to kind of provide a, a little bridge from what we've been talking about, uh, some of these experiments uh, and efforts uh, uh, at mind control, at the ability to control other human beings that lived under the umbrella of MK Ultra and other government programs. So one of the things that we hear now, uh, in fact, it was said, I think, on the series Homeland uh, on Sunday night is, well, if you really want to, quote unquote, break somebody, you know, if you really want to get somebody to do something that he or she was not supposed, not predisposed to do, for example, join the other side. You know, somebody who's been on one side uh, to join the other side. In general, what you do probably is you exploit vulnerabilities, weaknesses, desires that they have. You kind of win them over through a subtle set of manipulations. Is that is that kind of where a lot of this wound up, a lot of the stuff that we were talking about before, after all the lobotomies and, and implants and, and drug therapies? Is, is that where it kind of landed? Um, that's a good question. I'd have to think about it a little bit to tell you the truth. Uh, I think that, that part of the driver of the programs uh, had to do with that type of conversion or uh, uh, in, increasing the capacity of uh, a programmer, so to speak, to split a person's personality and make them do this thing or that thing. Um, and that that was tied up very much with, uh, particularly after 1959, with the notion of a Manchurian candidate, uh, that somebody could have been captured by the Chinese or the North Koreans and then programmed to have the appearance of being a loyal American, uh, but in fact was a secret agent uh, for foreign powers. Um, that... 
type of it is certainly possible mm-hmm. to convince people to change their minds mm-hmm. and uh, for uh, susceptible in individuals people with with uh, weak personalities uh, weak so- sense of self and so forth um, you can those types of persuasions take place and and you can see that not just in intelligence matters, but in day-to-day life. All right. Well, so, uh, so that's that's a good uh, bridge, I think, to our, our final uh, guest here, uh, Stephen Hassan. Uh, am I saying your last name right? Is it Hassan? No, it's Hassan. Hassan. I, it was one of those two. Uh, as usual, I made the wrong guess. <laughs> so, so Steve uh, Hassan, uh, director of uh, the Freedom of Mind Center, a former member of the Unification Church. Uh, you knew them as the Moonies in the 1970s and the author of Combating Cult Mind Control. So, you know, a little bit uh, of what you uh, heard uh, uh, Chris say is probably familiar to you, too. The notion that people with a weak sense of self can be manipulated into doing certain things that maybe weren't on their calendar when they got up this morning. Yeah, unfortunately, that's part of the inaccurate um, window that people basically use as a result of not understanding social psychology, and it falls under the what's known as the fundamental attribution error of social psychology, where you over-attribute variables to the person and you under-attribute the social environmental contextual variables of influence. So I, I don't mind. I've been called a weak-minded person <laughs> we weren't for saying 40 that, plus years, yeah. but I wasn't, and I was an extra honor student and in a middle, very stable middle-class family from Queens. My girlfriend did dump me, and I was approached by three women flirting with me, so I was situationally vulnerable. There you go. Um, and, uh, and situational vulnerabilities are part of the human experience, the death of a loved one, illness, graduation, losing a job, moving to a new city, state, or country makes us situationally vulnerable. The, the biggest single vulnerability is, is lack of understanding of the techniques of, of uh, mind controllers. And um, that's why uh, I've spent the last 40-plus years writing three books and being on TV and doing lectures and workshops around the world and helping people recover mind control. So as a young reporter, I covered a lot of this stuff. I, uh, I was a reporter writing about religion in the 1970s, quite familiar with Ted Patrick, who was the most famous guy uh, involved in what was called deprogramming uh, at the time. A lot of other people were doing it, obviously. Uh, I talked to members of the Unification Church. I talked to their families, uh, Divine Light Mission, all these kinds of groups. And, and you know, we, as I said earlier in the show, it's the 20th anniversary uh, of Heaven's Gate right now. There's a book also right. out about the People's Temple and Jim Jones. But so all of this stuff feels like it's in the past. Everything I just described is in the past. Um, And there is, I think, maybe a common sense out there that this whole story is in the past. I gather it isn't in the past for you, not strictly. It is absolutely not in the past. It's in the the forefront of of the present. I can tell you that uh, I I was deprogrammed after a near-fatal van crash, which is how my family found me. So I had a five-day deprogramming, and I went on to do deprogramming for about a year before I went back to college to study psychology and eventually get my license as a mental health counselor. But um, what's happened is big cults like the Moonies and Scientology, etc., have used a lot of their clout, lobbying, PIs, 
etc., to harass the media to not cover the stories involving their nefarious activities, criminal behavior, and uh, intimidating people. So the the public is not getting the straight story on what's the facts about what these groups are doing to people, deceptively recruiting. Multi-level marketing groups are an outstanding example of how uh, criminal activity is being covered over as like a capitalist, you know, you can be an independent contractor, whether it's Trump University or it's uh, – uh, Herbalife or Amway or any number of these other organizations. But if you break it down to study how people are deceptively influenced, and lack of informed consent is a huge piece of mind control that people are being influenced into uh, a set of incre- incrementalized behaviors, which ultimately, in in the extreme form, results in a new identity. All right. So I want to just uh, uh, before my, we I don't want to run out of time. Sure. First of all, thank yeah. God you didn't thank God you didn't say Tupperware. Uh, I was really worried for a second. But also, I, so I, a couple of quick questions here. One of them is, you know, let's say let's take the Unification Church. It's the church you know the best. Uh, I would assume is everybody in there. Um, a brainwashed drone, or are, like I, I don't know. I met people from the Unification Church. They seem pretty normal. They seem pretty volitional. This was their faith. They're maybe observing a faith that exists on the fringes of mainstream uh, worship, but but uh, they didn't seem like zombies to me. Yeah, uh, I think it's an error to think that people in mind control cults act like some kind of zombies, where their their eyes don't blink, etc. By the way, the the Moon organization has hundreds of friend groups. If I had been approached by someone saying, hi, I'm in the Unification Church, I would have said, I'm Jewish. No, thank you. You were probably approached uh, by CARP, so, right? Yeah, I was recruited actually by a group. They, they use One World Crusade. Later, I was told to start a CARP at Queens College Collegiate Association for the Researcher Principles. But it's all based on not understanding what the real behaviors are, that Moon was the Messiah, that Korea was the, the fatherland, that that uh, Armageddon was about to happen. All the real beliefs that uh, were installed in me with three to four hours of sleep and uh, isolated in, in, in long indoctrination sessions. Let me but ask you. Let me ask you the, one. one the, okay, the, go ahead. I just want to sure. say that if 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 you ask someone in a mind control cult, can you think for yourself or are you brainwashed? They'll laugh and say, "Of course not." But you if you ask them, "You've been in it for ten years. Tell me three things you disagree with, or tell me one thing that you don't that you don't like in the leader." Then you'll watch them struggle because they're not allowed to think negative thoughts and they're certainly not allowed to say negative things about the group. Right. This is something Robert J. Lifton, who was kind of the guy who uh, tried to define what a cult is. I think he called it ideological totalism, something like that. You really, you know. So Robert Lifton's book, who he was an Air Force psychiatrist studying Chinese communist brainwashing in the 50s, wrote the seminal book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, which was used in my deprogramming. I later uh, met with him, and he became my mentor. He later went on to write a book called Destroying the World to Save It. And I actually have several interviews that I did with Dr. Lifton on my website for people who would like to know more about it. There is a science 
of how the mind works and how to influence beliefs and how to market to people. And a critical piece is hypnosis. Another critical piece is um, just understanding how to uh, get inside people's heads, find out what is going to mobilize them or motivate them. It could be them wanting to make themselves better. It may be that they want to make the world better. It could be that they're spiritually inclined. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking of cults just as religious groups, but they can be political cults or therapy cults or business cults. Uh, people don't think about pimps as as mind controllers, but they are. All right, Steve Hassan, uh, I'm going to have to stop you there just because we're out of time, sure. uh, and also because I suddenly I want a Pepsi. I feel like I got to have one right now. Um, all right, so thank you so much, Steve Hassan, uh, for joining us today. Uh, Chris uh, Simpson, uh, Ben Bowl, and all of our fine guests here. Thanks once again to Josh Nalea for producing this show. Uh, thanks to my uh, wonderful interpreters. Uh, Sarah and Mary Sue. Actually, Mary Sue is my interpreter. Sarah is everybody else's interpreter. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow with a show about walls. Are walls really worth it? You know, what's wall? What are the track records of walls? Mind control, corruption of your thoughts.